It's good to be with you all again. It's um, just a great blessing to come together to worship the Lord and, um, and go to His Word for comfort, for help, for strength. And we find ourselves this morning back in the Gospel of John. I know some of you have been um, itching to get back into John's Gospel. We took a little break for a couple of weeks, and so we are back um, to this great and glorious Gospel. And we'll be beginning this morning, chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. And we saw in the previous chapter, if you can remember that far back, we looked at the death and the resurrection of the man named Lazarus. We saw at the beginning the sovereignty of our Lord over the suffering of his people, right? When you remember, Jesus finds out that Lazarus is ill, that he's fallen sick, and instead of going immediately to him, instead of curing him by speaking a word, he waits in the place where he was. And Lazarus ends up dying. Our Lord weeps over the death of his friend. But we see that that's not where our Lord leaves him, that he speaks a word and this dead man hears the voice of the Son of God, walks out of the tomb, and rises again. Amazing. (laughs) But if you remember at the end of that chapter, we see that uh, the religious leaders don't like this. They don't like this light of the world. They don't like the power that our Lord is showcasing. And so they seek to arrest him and ultimately put him to death. And so as we turn this week, we'll be looking, we kind of make a shift in John's gospel a little bit, where we slow down, where the previous part of John's gospel, the first 11 chapters, covered basically the first three years of Jesus's life. And it's in these last chapters, which is really half of John's gospel, that he commits to the last week of our Lord's life. And we'll see today this death of our Lord approaching and getting near, near this last week of our Lord's earthly ministry. And what we're going to see today in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11, is this great contrast. We're going to see this great contrast between this act of Mary, this lavish, extravagant act of Mary that she performs to our Lord by anointing his feet with oil. She anoints him with this expensive, extravagant oil in preparation for his ultimate burial. And we're going to see the contrast between this great act of Mary and the vile, idolatrous act of the man named Judas. The vile, idolatrous act of the man named Judas who will ultimately go on to betray our Lord And so we see the contrast between true devotion, true affection, and the worthiness of Christ that's seen by Mary, and we see the false piety and idolatrous greed of the man named Judas. And this is ultimately going to point us beyond this act itself to something greater and other, namely the glory and the worth of Christ. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's Word. Let's pray, or let's read, and then we'll pray. Verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment 
made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 narii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel of John, this great and glorious book, this infallible word to us, your people, that you have given us that we might see the worth and the glory of Christ this morning. If we're honest with ourselves, we're often weighed down by the cares and concerns of this world. We're tempted to look at earthly things, to see the value in riches, in comfort, in wealth, and not see the glory and the worth of Christ and what He has done for sinners. We pray this morning that You would open the eyes of our hearts, that by the Spirit You would illuminate our hearts, that we might see the true gospel of grace, the gospel of grace, and this morning we would be changed from one degree of glory to next as we behold Christ and Him crucified. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we turn now in John chapter 12 to the final week of our Lord's life. We see in verse 1 that this is six days before the Passover, And on that Passover day, our Lord, as the true Passover lamb, will sacrifice himself. He will be offered up as the true lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we see that we come to this town of Bethany, where Mary, where Martha, and Lazarus are gathered together at this dinner, this table that they prepared for the Lord, where it's amazing. In the previous chapter, these people were grieving They were mourning over the death of their brother, crying, weeping, and now they are gathered around this meal rejoicing at what the Lord has done in raising their brother who was dead. (laughs) And now he's sitting at the same table with them, alive. The one who was in the grave, Lazarus, is now alive and at the table with his sisters and with Jesus. Amazing. And we see as we go through this passage, that even though this is an amazing event, Lazarus has been raised from the dead, that he is not the most important person sitting at the table with them. So that brings us to our verses this morning. So we're going to look at three things you can follow along on your outline if you want. First, we're going to look at this anointing, this anointing of Mary in verses one through three. We're going to look at this great act that she performs in the anointing of our Lord. 
Secondly, we'll look at the objection of Judas. We'll look at the objection in verses 4 through 6. And then finally, we'll look at Christ, the anointed one, in the remaining verses. So first we see that at this table, we have Martha who is serving. This is typical of Martha. If you remember, we've talked about this before. She was rebuked in other gospels for serving too much and not listening. But now she has a right and proper understanding and she's serving as um, she's serving the guests that are gathered at this table. And we also see Lazarus is there, the man that was dead. I love that John adds that. The man that had been raised from the dead is at the table. It's like amazing to think about. Can you imagine sitting at a table with someone who was dead and then rose again? It's amazing to think about. And we see Lazarus reclining at the table with Jesus. But then we see in verse 2, that, or sorry, in verse 3, that Mary comes to the table. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, comes to the table. And unexpectedly, without prior warning, she performs one of the most lavish, extravagant, and jarring acts of devotion recorded, I think, in all the Gospels. She takes a pound of expensive oil pure nard from an alabaster jar, we find out in other gospel accounts, this rare and foreign perfume, and she pours it out on the feet of our Lord. She pours it out over his feet, wiping it with her hair, anointing the feet of our Lord. She doesn't just use a drop of this oil, not a dab of this oil, but she empties the entire vessel to the last drop. And as we read, the entire house is filled with this sweet-smelling aroma. This is a truly remarkable act. One time, my wife and I were in Chicago. I think this was before Uber. We're like walking many blocks. It's really cold out, and we don't have a roller bag. I have this like bag over my shoulder, and we're carrying all of our clothes. And she had this like little bottle of peppermint, you know, like a peppermint oil or something. And it fell out of the bag and she was devastated. It was just a small little thing. It was probably really expensive. That's probably why. (laughs) And the whole street smelled like peppermint. We were walking multiple blocks away and the whole street smelled of peppermint. And if a small vial of peppermint could fill the streets of Chicago, how much more would 12 ounces of perfume fill this entire house with fragrance and aroma? This is an astonishing thing that Mary does in this room. And what makes it so remarkable, there's three things to note that really stand out why this is so remarkable. First is the cost. The cost of this oil, the cost of this ointment. We find out later that the value of this perfume would have been an entire year's wages. An entire year's wages worth of money was put into this perfume. 300 denarii. You know, you look at average income in America, about $60,000. $60,000 worth of perfume poured out in a matter of of seconds. This is the cost, and it's immense. And as we said, she doesn't just use some of this. She doesn't use it sparingly. She uses all of it. So we see the cost that makes this remarkable, but we also see this controversial element. We see this controversial element that she uses her hair to wipe the feet of our Lord. Now, in that day, maybe even more so than in our day, it was, well, not this part, but just 
sorry, in that day, it was considered improper for a woman to unbind her hair in public. They would have had their hair bound up most of the time. And so if someone let down their hair in public, it was often viewed as someone who had loose morals, right? It was viewed as an improper thing. And it was kind of an unseemly thing to do in that time. And I was looking in the news, there was a chess player from the Middle East who, um, who let down her hair in a chess tournament, and she was actually warned to not come back to that country because of this. And so even in our day, there's some, you can kind of think about how this would have been viewed in that day, uh, 2,000 years ago. Now, Mary doesn't do anything sinful here. She doesn't do anything unlawful, but it is jarring. It is remarkable what she does. And she's really going against the grain of that culture at the time by doing this act. Um, but it's clear that she doesn't care what people think. She, it's not like she's, looking for, she's like she's looking for something to wipe his feet with, and the only thing she can find is her own hair. And she does this amazing act and remarkable thing. And the third thing we see, so we see the cost, we see the controversy, and the third thing that makes this so remarkable is the consecration the consecration, that rather than pouring this oil on the head of our Lord, she pours it on his feet. She pours it on his feet. Now, why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? It was common, even in the Old Testament, for kings, for priests, for prophets to be anointed on their head with oil as they were set apart for this particular task. You go look at the priest Aaron in the Old Testament. He was anointed with oil. King David was anointed as a king with oil. But in the first century, the feet of people were not like our feet today. Okay, They had open-toed shoes. There was wild animals roaming the street. Their feet would have been dirty, okay? It doesn't take much imagination to imagine what the feet of the people in the first century would have been like. Dirty, grimy, filthy. And it was typical of the lowest servant in the house to wash the feet of the guests with water, to take water and to wash their feet. But what we see here is no lowly servant, but it is Mary who washes the feet of our Lord. And it is not water that she uses to anoint his feet, but expensive oil. Wiping, not with a towel or with a rag, but cleansing his feet with her own hair. An amazing, remarkable, lavish, extravagant, seemingly outrageous act by Mary. It is one thing to anoint someone's head with oil. It is quite another thing to anoint their feet with this expensive oil. This is unheard of. But for Mary, this is an act of love, devotion, and even worship to Christ, right? This is a generous act she has performed, condescending, lowering herself, maybe even prostrating herself before the Lord out of reverence for Him. But it's not only reverence that she has, it's a believing love she has in Christ, looking to him in faith as the Christ, as the Messiah, the true anointed one, as we learned about today, the Christ. She's looking to him by faith, the true prophet, priest, and king of God's people. Now, did she understand all this as she's doing this act? We don't really know. 
But what we do know is that in God's providence and sovereignty, she acted better than she knew. (laughs) She acted better than she knew. But we see, sadly, that this is not how everyone in the room feels about this act. That brings us to our second point this morning, the objection. The objection. We see that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, one of the ones that has been with our Lord for three years, walking with Him, hearing His teaching, this man, Judas, objects to this extravagant act. And we read about this in verse 5. He says, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? Why was this ointment not sold? Why was this expensive oil used in this way? Shouldn't it be given to the poor? Doesn't it seem a bit excessive? Isn't this a bit much? Maybe there's a better use for this money, for this oil. Can't we use this to help someone in need? And I think from an earthly perspective, right, we can, seem how, we can see how this might seem like a valid question, right? This is a lot of money. This is a big, expensive act that she's just done. There's something in us that's like, you know, couldn't this be used for a different purpose? Couldn't we just use part of it and not all of it? Couldn't there be a better use for this expensive oil? But as we see Judas's true motives revealed for asking this question, the true intentions of his heart laid bare, it becomes clear that this seemingly pious question is nothing but a thin coat of white paint on a dead and rotting corpse, right? It's a thin veneer of piety over someone who hates our Lord, a vile pretense for his greed and treachery. And it's here that we see Judas's true colors come out. That what appears on the surface, right? What appears on the surface as an act of piety, of selflessness, let's think about the poor, is actually a cleverly devised scheme to line his own pockets, to put money into his own wallet. And we see John later reveal this in John chapter 12, verse 6. He says, he said this, that is Judas, not because he cared about the poor, not because he actually wanted to help the people that were in need, but because he was a thief, because he was a swindler, because he was a robber and a stealer of that which was not his. And having charge of the money bag, right? Judas was the treasurer of the 12 disciples. He had charge of the money bag. He was the one that kept the money that was used for Jesus' public ministry. He himself would help himself to that which was in the bag. He would take some of what was given for the public preaching of Christ's ministry and take it for his own benefit. He would steal. He would take that which was not his in order to enrich himself. But what's amazing is not only is Judas a thief and a selfish lover of money, but he uses this plea to help the poor as a cover for his own sin. 
as a cover for his own sin. He uses pious, even kind of holy language in order to conceal his idolatry and his greed, his absolute love of money. This is called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Can't we use this to help the poor? Why is she doing this while he in the back takes money from the bag that was given to the ministry of Christ? This is a terrible, despicable thing. And this will ultimately be the downfall and the end of Judas. Because what is it that causes him to betray our Lord? 30 pieces of silver. 30 pieces of silver. As one commentator said, Judas, having betrayed our Lord's trust, will soon betray his master. He will soon betray his master. And I think this is a good reminder for all of us that there's no small sin. There's no such thing as a small sin. Judas didn't begin thinking, yeah, I'm going to betray Jesus. It started with just taking a little bit from the bag. No one will see what I'm doing. This isn't a big deal. It's only a couple dollars. God doesn't have a problem with this. It's not a big deal. And this leads to his downfall and his demise and ultimately betraying the perfect son of God. And we see at the heart of this is not just a love for money, but it's actually Judas has failed to see the glory and the worth of Christ. He's failed to see the glory and the value of the one that is standing right in front of him. Christ is actually of no value to him. Money is. Money has been made his God, and he is worshiping it. Whether it's wealth or power, comfort, success, fame, the pleasures of this world, Christ is not worthy to him of this extravagant act. It doesn't make sense in his mind. It doesn't make sense why this is happening. He sees this act as excessive, as exorbitant, right? That it, it doesn't make sense. As the other gospel accounts record, they say, why was this oil wasted? Why was this oil wasted? Why was this expensive ointment squandered? It's all a giant waste. <laughs> Judas has got the person of Christ wrong. He's misunderstood the one that's standing in front of him. He's valued the wrong thing. Money has become his God and Christ is of no value to him. His own creator stands incarnate before him, the one who would give his life and breath and everything, and yet in his selfishness, he worships money and not his own creator. And so we see he uses this false piety, this hypocrisy as a means of demeaning Mary's act of love, of devotion, and worship, and we see that our Lord will not stand for this. Our Lord will not stand for this. He sees the intentions of man's heart, and he knows what is in man. So that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we see Jesus in the following verses not only rebuke Judas for what he has done and justify Mary's act, but he shows us the true meaning and significance of what Mary has done. He rebukes Judas in verse 7. He says, leave her alone. 
leave her alone. Now remember, nobody in the room knows that Judas is taking. (laughs) Nobody else in the room knows what is secretly going on behind the scenes. And nevertheless, Jesus rebukes him and says, leave her alone. Let her alone, Judas. You do not understand what she has done. But not only does he rebuke Judas, he justifies what Mary has done. Not only does he accept her worship, he doesn't say, stop, this is too much, this is too excessive. He accepts her worship and her devotion, and he doesn't stop her. That as God incarnate, he is worthy of all worship, of all praise, of all devotion. And he says something very interesting At the end of verse 7, he says, she has kept this for the day of my burial. She's kept this for the day of my burial. And it is in this answer that we see the true meaning and purpose of this great act of Mary. He says, she has kept this for the day of my burial. She has anointed me for the day of my death. Now, this is an odd statement, I think, for a couple reasons, okay? The first thing is, Jesus here claims to know the day of his own death, okay? That's not a normal thing. None of us know the day or hour of our death. Jesus here claims to know when he will die. The second thing that makes this kind of odd is Jesus had just raised a man from the dead. Lazarus was dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead, okay? So why is death a problem here? What, what does this statement mean? But I think what's maybe the most odd about this statement is that he is anointed for burial while he is still alive. He's anointed for burial while he is still alive. He's not dead yet, to quote Mighty Python. You don't anoint someone for the tomb before they are dead. You do it after they die, right? It's kind of seemingly backwards. Why is he being anointed for burial before he is dead? You don't embalm someone before they've passed away. You don't embalm someone while they're living. And so what is going on here? You don't anoint the living, you anoint the dead. But what if the one you are anointing will die, but will also rise again. What if the one you're anointing is the true and promised anointed one, the Lord Jesus Christ? And it's here we see the significance of this event that is recorded in John chapter 12. That not only does this anointing point us to the coming death of Christ and his future burial in the tomb, but it also points us beyond his burial to his future resurrection from the grave. His future resurrection from the grave. One Reformation theologian said it like this, this act foreshadows for us both death and resurrection. For the fact that Mary anoints Christ's body signifies that the Lord is going to die as it was customary for the bodies of the dead to be anointed. But the fact that she anoints a living body was, before it was dead, points us to the resurrection. (laughs) 
that Christ will not remain dead. He will not remain in the tomb, but he will indeed rise again. And so we can see how this anointing points beyond itself, even beyond the tomb, to the resurrection of our Lord. That even though he will die, he will be buried in the tomb, he will be wrapped and buried in linen clothes, he will not remain there. He will rise again. As he said in John chapter 10, I have authority to lay down my life, and I have authority to take it back up again. That the one who was anointed while he was alive will conquer death and will be alive forevermore. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And ultimately, after his resurrection, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father where he will ever live to make intercession for his people. Now you might say to me, Kendall, did Mary know all this? Did she understand the fullness of this as she was performing this act of worship and devotion? The answer is probably not. She probably didn't understand the significance of what she was doing, the divine intent behind her actions. But as we said before, Mary acts better than she knew. She acts better than she knew. And that in God's providence, this was going to point beyond itself to the true meaning and significance of this act. That it is about his work of salvation. Not only dying, not only being buried, but rising from the grave. And this is why he responds the way he does in verse 8. He says, For the poor you will always have. There will always be people that need help. There will always be people in need, in poverty, people to serve, people to give to. But you will not always have me. You will not always have me. As Luke chapter 5 says, Adam actually reminded me of this this week, the bridegroom will be taken away. The bridegroom will be taken away. Judas will go on to betray our Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver, the equivalent of $300. He will betray our Lord with a kiss. And our Lord will be beaten, he'll be whipped, he'll be mocked, he'll be flogged, he'll be spit on, he'll be crucified on a cross, the Prince of Glory put to death for sinners. And the one who brought Lazarus from the grave will himself enter the tomb in his burial for three days. But just as Jonah was in the heart of the fish for three days and vomited back, our Lord will not remain in the grave. He will rise from the dead and he will not remain there. And having accomplished this work of redemption, he will do for his people what they could not do for themselves. As the anointed prophet, priest, and king of God's people, as we confess this morning, he will be resurrected, he will bodily ascend into heaven, and having accomplished his earthly ministry, he will begin his heavenly one, (laughs) pouring out his spirit, as we talked about last week, on his church and building his people. And even though in his human nature he's not now with us on the earth, by his divine nature, majesty, and spirit, he is not absent with us for even a moment, (laughs) right? This is the promised presence of our Lord. Christ is present with his people by the spirit. He will be present with his people bodily at the final marriage supper of the Lamb, pictured here in an interesting way at the beginning of our chapter, right? It says that 
Jesus is with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, this man that had been risen, rose from the dead, right? And I liked what one um, commentator, he he said this, Christ, the riser of all the dead, will again sit at a table with all the faithful who have been raised by him. Just as Lazarus was raised from the dead and seated at the table with our Lord, so all will be raised with Christ on the last day at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's what's so, I think, ironic and kind of laughable about the religious leader's attempt to put Lazarus to death in the, in the last couple of verses here. This one who had already died and already been raised, they're going to try to kill him. It's like, what's the point of that? Okay, I like what Augustine said. He said, this is pure blind malice, trying to kill someone who's already been raised from the dead, right? A pointless endeavor, true blindness, true folly. This is the folly of unbelief. This is the folly of Satan's schemes against God's people, right? He thinks by putting people to death, he can snuff us out, but it's actually an entrance of God's people into glory. And that even though Lazarus is going to be persecuted, and ultimately Lazarus is going to die again, just like you and I will die, Satan cannot stop him from rising again. And it's the same thing with our Lord. Just as Satan thought by putting the Son of God to death, that will end this. It was actually his downfall and his destruction. And so we can say today that Christ has truly risen indeed, all pointed forward to in this glorious act of Mary. And so as we try to apply this passage, as we try to bring this home, I think it's important that we don't do what's very typical of this passage. And what happens is people try to moralize this story, right? Look at Mary's extravagant act. What can you give to God, right? What's the most expensive thing you own? You need to sell it and give it to the church or give it to me or whoever says stuff like this, okay? And it's, it's tempting to want to say, okay, well, Mary did this and look how good Mary is. You need to be like Mary. But the point is not to be like Mary. The point is to see what Mary saw. And that's our first point of application this morning is we need to see the glory and the worth of Christ. We need to see the glory and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ above all else. Because what Mary saw and what you and I need to see is that Christ is worth everything. There's no price too big. There's no gift too large. There's no oil too expensive for the Savior of sinners. What did we sing this morning? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that would still be a present too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all, right? This is how we are to see Christ and his worthiness. He is worthy of our worship and our praise. This is the refrain in the book of Revelation. Worthy is the lamb that was slain worthy to receive all glory and all honor and all power, right? This is the lamb that was crucified for sinners like us, who not only creates us, not only sustains us, but has saved us from our sin and wickedness. This is what Christ has done. And so we owe him everything, every act of devotion, every act of adoration, above all else, we are to serve our Christ, the King. The second thing we need to see is the folly of idolatry. The folly of idolatry. 
that we must be careful to value that which is truly valuable. We must be careful to value that which is truly valuable. Judas was not only a thief. He wasn't just a thief. He didn't just break the eighth commandment. He broke the first commandment. He was an idolater. He was an idolater. Judas desired gold and silver, money and riches over the riches of salvation in Christ. He wanted the fame, the glory, the wealth over what Christ could give. Or as Paul says, he worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator. As Matthew Henry would say, the breaking of the second table of the law, the last six commandments concerning our neighbor, is an indication that we've already broken the first table of the law, the first four commandments. That Judas' desire for money revealed that he did not desire God in Christ, right? That not only did he steal, but he made worship his I mean, he made money his idol. He worshiped and served greed and money and not Christ. That he did not see the value and worth of what Christ would do for a sinner like him. Or as it says in the other Gospels, Judas would say, why was this oil wasted? Why was this oil wasted? It's a seeming waste to the unbeliever. And I think for us gathered here today, This is often what the world will say to us, right? Your time spent worshiping God, that is a waste. Why would you waste your life worshiping and serving God? Why would you waste your life seeking to live for Him, seeking to live purely, seeking to live uprightly? Why would you waste your... Live for yourself. Live for the pleasures of this world. Live for this life. All of your religious stuff is a giant waste, But the scripture is very clear that it is actually the world that wastes its life. It's the world that wastes its life in the worldly pleasures of this world, seeking after those things which do not satisfy. And this is why Isaiah can say, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And why do you buy that which does not satisfy, right? Come to Christ, the bread of life that truly satisfies God's people. And so, brothers and sisters, living your life in worship to the triune God, seeking to live for Him, is no waste, but it's actually the greatest act of worship that we could give to the God of the universe, right? What's the first question in the Westminster Catechism? What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is our chief end, and this is what God has given His people to do. And the final thing we need to see this morning, I know we're going long, but this is important. The final thing we'll see this morning is the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ. That we see that what was pictured in Mary's act of devotion, a physical picture of worship and love, of Christ's people that's made acceptable by his sacrifice is a Roma pleasing to God. That what we see in the Old Testament is that sacrifices and offerings given to God, made acceptable to him and by him, would rise to the heavens and would be called a sweet and smelling 
offering a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is how the sacrifices in the Old Testament are viewed. You go to the book of Leviticus, it says this over and over. It was a sweet aroma to the Lord. It was a pleasing sacrifice. It was a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. And so what was pictured physically in the Old Testament is brought to fulfillment in the new. The visible picture of fragrant offerings rising up to God is pointing to the spiritual worship of God's people, made acceptable not by themselves, but by the work of Christ. That the preaching of Christ and Him crucified and the work and worship of God's people, the church, is referred to and called in the New Testament a fragrant offering, pleasing and acceptable to the Lord. What does Romans 12 say? I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul will go on in the book of Philippians to say this, talking about the generous gifts that they gave to support the church and the work of church planting. He calls it a fragrant offering. He says, I've received full payment and more, and I am well supplied. And the gift that you sent is a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Right? That the gifts of God's people to support the work of the church And the work of church planting is seen as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talking about the preaching of the gospel and the spreading of the knowledge of Christ and his word, he calls it the aroma of Christ. The aroma of Christ, this fragrance that spreads and fills everywhere that Christ is preached. And Paul in 2 Corinthians says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us, listen to these words, this is John 12, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it is a fragrance from death to death. But to the other, it is a fragrance from life to life. That just as Mary's act of devotion and worship filled the house with the fragrance of perfume, so the praises of God's people and the preaching of the gospel fills the whole earth with the knowledge of Christ. To some, like Judas, It is an aroma of death. It is a foul smell, pointing out their sin, their wickedness, the judgment that is to come, ultimately leading to the persecution of God's people. But to us who are being saved, it is the fragrance from life to life, a sweet-smelling aroma, salvation of our sins, peace with our Creator, joy in the Holy Spirit, and the gospel of grace that forgives our every iniquity. And as Habakkuk 2.14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. This is our hope. This is our promise this morning from Christ's word. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your infinite mercy that is bottomless, that could not be dried out. Lord, our sins are many, our iniquity is great, and we are too often like Judas, who using pious language, holy language, try to make ourselves look better than we are. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our sin and iniquity. Help us to see what Mary saw, which is the glory and the worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only way we can be made right with the holy God of the universe. And as your gospel is proclaimed, as your word goes forth, may we be the aroma of Christ to a dead and dying world. Some will hear it as the aroma of death, but to us who are being saved, it is the aroma of life. It is salvation from our sins, and it is glory with you forever and ever, world without end. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.